Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Fighting and taking on all the plates and paint and troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get We talk a lot about free speech on TechDirt because it's kind of the core to, to everything we do uh, and incredibly important. And these days it's popping up in all sorts of big debates, especially regarding social media and uh, questions about content moderation. Uh, we've had on uh, UCI law professor David Kay uh, in the past on this podcast a few times back when he was also uh, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of the Right to Freedom of Opinion and Expression, which is the longest title ever, uh, where he weighed in on a number of important debates regarding free speech and social media, and also how copyright can interfere with free expression. So uh, he is no longer in that particular role, but but he was recently named the co-director of the Fair Elections and Free Speech Center, also at UCI. Uh, and so I wanted to have him back on the podcast to talk about the center, uh, as well as some of the uh, other aspects of the current debates and challenges regarding free speech. So uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. It's great to, to be here <laughs> and to see you. Yes, yes, we're doing this one. We're recording this one with video, which is unlike yeah. how we've recorded in the past. But uh, um, so, t tell me a little bit about this this center and and what it is mm -hmm. that you're you're trying to do with it, and and what you hope to accomplish with it. Yeah. So, um, so my colleague Rick Hasen and I, and and Rick, you know, anybody who follows American elections and certainly election law will also follow Rick. I mean, he's one of the leading election law scholars in the country. Um, you know, he and I both together and independently have been interested in the question of, you know, the, the integrity of elections, the integrity of the information environment, the ability of individuals to have access to information about elections, but also, you know, the, the way in which both in the United States and around the world, there are pressures on public speech, on debate, on criticism, on protest that have a real interfering quality when it comes to our democracy. And so, um, I mean, it was really Rick's initiative to set up a center that looked at, in a way that, that most other academic centers aren't doing. I mean, academic centers tend to either focus on elections or free speech, but not the two of those together. And we thought, one, you know, we're both interested in these things from different perspectives let's let's create a center in which we you know do events uh, start to bring together scholarship and so forth um, but also we we notice that these are issues that are not limited to you know the united states of america i mean these are the same kinds of problems that we face here although you know they have variation are being faced by people around the world and by governments around the world and so in a way since rick is you know, a real domestic, you know, both statutory and constitutional scholar. And my background is in international human rights and international law more generally, we would bring those things together and try to create some space for learning between those two uh, environments and those legal bodies. 
Cool. And, and certainly timely. (laughs) There's a a lot going on, uh, having to do with, with questions about free speech and, and elections. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there is, I mean, that part is really important to us. I mean, there's, there's a kind of urgency. I mean, I think it's true for, you know, anybody who's been involved in an academic center would, would agree that there's a, a kind of, um, you know, a long, lead up to the creating creation of a center, you know, the raising of money can, you know, can take years, all of those things. And also, you know, the pressure tends to be not immediate, like, oh, mm-hmm. let's set up the center. And over, you know, maybe five years from now, we'll have an edited volume that, you know, <laughs> 17 people will read. And, you know, I think our idea was, these are matters of urgency. Uh, you know, it's about elections, in 2022 in the United States. It's about global elections that are taking place this year. I mean, Germany's election in September, I mean, Americans don't talk about this all that much, but, you know, the German elections are being mediated on, in online space in a big way. And there's this uptick in extremism, whatever extremism is, uptick in attacks on, um, you know, marginalized communities and so forth. And it's having an impact on their election. So our, our thinking really was like, th- this is urgent. We got to put something together now. And if you look at the uh, the advisory board that we put together, you know, it's a lot of people who both, who combine kind of the scholarly and the activist in, in all of their work, which is kind of our MO as well. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. And, and hopefully, in some ways, you know, makes this more effective than, than than some other centers that I think, you know, lean too hard into just purely the academic and, and, and not into making, you know, uh, making what they're researching practical and, and real and useful. So. Yeah, I mean, in, in where you are, I mean, in the Bay Area, I mean, Stanford has pioneered a number of centers that are very much along the lines of you know, we're, we've got scholarship, we have real research, rigorous research, um, but it needs to plug into policy, you know, whether it's right. company policy or, you know, public policy. And it's not that those are a model. We have people from Stanford who are on our board as well. Um, there, there's a kind of like mindedness around the question of urgency that I think I think people in this space definitely see. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So, so let, let's let's talk a little bit about the, these questions about misinformation uh, around elections, in particular. Though it, it applies to, to lots of other stuff, and I know there's, you know, as we're recording, there's there's a lot of talk about misinformation, specifically regarding you know vaccine information um, and misinformation on social media. Um, I, I think that the challenges related to elections and vaccine information. Um, are, are pretty similar in some ways, and there may be some some aspects that are different, but but there are some similarities. Um, do you have any thoughts on kind of th- that debate and the sort of the state of the debate on that right now? Yeah, I have lots of thoughts. <laughs> Whether I can articulate them is another question. I mean, you know, it's interesting that you you mentioned in the in that setup um, both the vaccine and public health disinformation mm-hmm. and election disinformation. I mean, they probably have a lot of like, there's a common genome to those things. Certainly, I mean, there's there's a common way in which that information spreads, you know, a Venn diagram of those, you know, the the people who are pushing those kinds of 
those forms of disinformation and the substance of it, probably there's a neat, uh, not total, but there's probably a good overlap there as well. But I think there are different kinds of disinformation and how we approach them has different implications. So like on the vaccine side, you know, I think there are, I mean, there's some very clear public health risks around, you know, which we saw, you know, when, you know, Trump was president, this was coming from the White House, you know, disinformation that can be really harmful, you know, Mm -hmm. bleach, you know, drink some bleach or like that kind of stuff was really and it's like it's mind blowing when we think that that actually was coming out of the White House. But that, you know, there's that kind of disinformation that has a real public health um, concern around it as and 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 that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be thinking about narrowly defining what disinformation is because you know i think it's um around the world so it's like putting on my like my global hat for a second we've seen governments actually try to criminalize uh pandemic disinformation which it turns out is really uh, criticism of the government's handling of the right. pandemic. I mean, we've seen this in in India with the pressure put on Twitter and Facebook around around this. Okay, so there there is a, a you know a kind of public debate and public health intersection there. But you know the the issues around you know elections and public debate and I, I think are a little th- those are a little bit trickier because. You know, it's one thing to say there's disinformation around polling. So if there's disinformation that says, oh, you know, the polls are closed on, you know, this Wednesday when in fact they're open or like those are, you know, the kinds of uh, easy, uh, like low hanging fruit Mm -hmm. to deal with disinformation. And that's that's almost like that's a, a form of fraud that, you know, you don't have to get into all of the neat questions of what is disinformation. Right. The problem is that. When you talk about disinformation around elections, you know, you could very easily get into the space where, you know, politicians, frankly, would be happy to be in like, oh, you criticized my record and you got something wrong. Well, you have a platform, you know, politician, and you can address that. And, you know, once we go, if we were to go down the path of dealing with that kind of disinformation, as opposed to ballot and other kinds of disinformation, you know, we really head quickly into the space of whether it's companies or, you know, God forbid, government saying, like, you can't say that. And that right. that has a real deep implication for the democracy or our democracy in a way that, you know, public health stuff certainly has an impact, but it doesn't have the same kind of impact. And I think it's it's important, although complicated, to kind of separate those things out. Yeah. And, and, and to be fair, right. I mean, you know, as you sort of pointed out there, like different types of, of information or misinformation or disinformation may have different, you know, both different impact or may be coming from different places, whether it's, you know, someone got something tiny wrong, someone is actively trying to mislead, you know, with both of these kinds of things, every, every piece of, of information, whether it's, it's factual misinformation, disinformation, or outright lie, whatever it might be, you know, each, each, each of those scenarios is, is unique and, and different. And, you know, in some, some cases, you know, that's, that can change over time. Right. So, I mean, you talked about government saying, 
you know, just criticizing our handling of this is, is misinformation. But there are things where like, you know, especially with, with, with the health information, where you have a pandemic where information is constantly changing, and people don't know, and you go back to the, the early example of the WHO and CDC recommending against masks, you know, would it then be, you know, health misinformation for people to be saying, no, no, you should be wearing a mask, right? And in retrospect, yeah. that turned out to be the right thing. And, and um, it, it gets very, very tricky very, very quickly. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and there, you know, there's a difference between disinformation, right, that has this mm -hmm. intentional quality and misinformation or just, mm -hmm. you know, wrong, but good faith, you know, efforts to, to share guidance. And it's, you know, it's, you know, figuring out those lines is really, is really complicated. I mean, it does get us to a kind of core question that is more, um, I think it goes more towards the theory of free speech in a way. And it's like, who should be making these decisions in the first place? Right. And that, I mean, that's the fundamental question, right? Like uh, government, in my view, should, you know, by and large, not be making these decisions. I mean, government has a role in the context of fraud, in the context of, you know, business models, you know, in the, in the context of advertising, but there's a lot of consumer protection that is available, like consumer protection law and frameworks that are available to government to, to address. Right. But, but if we take it out of that basket, you know, we rapidly get into a place where it's, you know, government, creating the framework for what's legitimate debate. And that's, I mean, that's really problematic. I mean, it's something else to say, well, companies should be making those decisions. That raises its own set of <laughs> yes, concerns, does. right? As you've been writing about for years, but you know, they are, those are very different kinds of, of things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're extremely different kinds of concerns and they lead to all different kinds of questions and different possible solutions. And it feels like much of the debate doesn't take any of that into account. And, and oh, yeah. you know, I've, I've, I've joked in the past that like everybody's solution to this is, is, you know, what they personally think. This information should be allowed. This information right. shouldn't. And, and why can't everybody else agree with me? You know, it seems yeah. obvious. Yeah, you, know, <laughs> you should be right. You, you should, you know, use your magic editor tool, right? <laughs> right. To, to win it over speech but i mean i think i mean this is why i think like our debate um i mean almost needless to say that the american debate is so politicized it's so um you know it feels sophomoric so often i mean it, it feels absurd yeah. and which i think for people who follow this closely and care about the information environment in the united states it's i mean it's frankly a bit depressing i mean i yeah. hope i what i would like I would love to see, I mean, we do see this already in the context of the European Union debating a Digital Services Act. They, they've they moved the debate to be thinking about transparency, um, you know, the kinds of requirements that aren't about content, but are right. about what it is that the public and policymakers need to know in order to make decisions about, you know, whether to be on a platform, whether to regulate it, whether to you know, in, in, you know, create some kind of public oversight. Like we just have very little, you know, kind of real time information and transparency about how the companies operate. And to me, it would be, it would be so great if the, if Congress in its kind of looming debates, <laughs> now, of course they talk about, 
you know, competition, which I think is a, is a good topic also, but it'd be nice if they moved into this other space as well of thinking about like, what are the things that we actually need to know? What do researchers need to have access to? You know, it's, we're, we're in this trust, but not verify moment, you know, from the companies that you know, like, they, they have all the information and we don't. Right. And I think it's fair to, to, to think about what regulation of the information environment, the transparency might look like. Yeah, no, I, I think there's some interesting things there. I mean, I think right now it feels like most of the congressional debate is, is um, about how to be punitive, right? It's, it's about yeah. how to punish, punish companies for doing things we dislike, rather than, you know, on both sides of the aisle in different ways for different reasons, rather yeah. than, you know, how do we how do we get to a better future? How do we fix the things that clearly are problems that maybe don't have easy answers? Um, and, you know, I have some issues with sort of the, the structure and the nature of the Digital Services Act in the EU. But I agree mm -hmm. that it like, it is a much more serious, much more thoughtful approach to these kinds yeah. of issues um, than, than than anything else pretty much anywhere right now. Yeah, um, and, but you know, it's also, you know, Europe has moved. I mean, I agree with you also, yeah. I'm not sort of giving my stamp of approval oh, to yeah, of every course. part of the DSA, but but Europe has moved uh, in significant ways. You know, they it, it wasn't very long ago that they had, they, they were in this mode of thinking about, like, how do we put pressure on the companies in this kind of extra legal way. So they came up with these codes right. of conduct, right? Which were like these backroom deals to basically press the companies to regulate hate speech um, without really adequately defining hate speech. And that was, I mean, that was really a problem for, for free speech, for civil society's engagement, for, yeah. you know, transparency all, and accountability. I mean, they're moving into this other space. So it's certainly possible for government actors to move away from a politicized space into something that is more, you know, serious and in a way professional that, you know, takes advantage of expertise. Like those things are possible. They don't see right. it all the time in Congress, but I, there's room and hopefully some saner voices will, will move the conversation that way. Yeah. That, that, that would be nice. Um, yeah. Speak hope. Yeah. Speaking of the U.S., um, do, do you have any thoughts on, on, you know, over the last you know couple of weeks, we've seen the White House suddenly um, decide that it needed to step up and, and accuse Facebook of all sorts of things. Again, this is getting back to the health misinformation in, in particular uh, and, and really sort of trying to put pressure on Facebook to deal with, you know, they, they sort of, said, you know, they pointed to a report, I, f I forget who published the report that that names 12 individuals that they mm -hmm. say are spreading most of the, you know, uh, vaccine misinformation, and, and really trying to put pressure on them. And that's, you know, led to to some pushback, and, and definitely, you know, a bunch of people who already are of the belief that social media is, you know, uh, a state actor and working with the government to censor conservatives to to freak out and say that this is proof, um, but it, it it does represent you know the government trying to put pressure on a, on a private platform to to deal with with what is protected speech for the most part as far as I can tell. Um, yeah. You know what what are your thoughts on on everything that's been happening with the administration and, and Facebook right now? Yeah, I mean, I, it's I, I was actually pretty surprised by some of the comments last week, because, you know, the, 
this administration has been like they've hired some uh, people who are really, really knowledgeable about platforms yeah. and have really sophisticated ideas. I mean, obviously, Lena Khan and Tim Wu are, are, you know, prime examples of people who've thought this. I mean, you might not agree with their particular policies, but they're also like as thoughtful as anybody on on, mm-hmm. on these issues. I mean, Tim's written books on the information space that are that are really worth reading. The, what, what really struck me last week was, you know, first the surgeon the Surgeon General had this set of comments that seemed, you know, fair, and it was part of a report that was about social media space. It wasn't focused on a particular company. I mean, I think in the Q and A he might have referred to it, but it was like a pretty decent, I think, complaint, or at least a grounded complaint about social media and the media. I think he talked about the the broader media. I mean, Fox News is as mm-hmm. much a problem as anything else, you know, online. Uh, so uh, what what struck me was that, you know, when I guess it was Jen Psaki, you know, really was very like focused on Facebook. And yeah. I mean, I don't hold any brief for Facebook, but the problem is broader than one company. Um, and then, you know, the president saying they're killing people. Right. I mean, that just it takes it to a place that I first I agree with you. It feeds into a kind of conservative narrative about government pressure on the platforms, which I don't think really exists. Right. But um, but it seemed to me the biggest concern I had was that it was a, it was missing an opportunity because one of the things that I think um I don't remember if it was Jen Psaki or somebody else said, um, it was in a New York Times report that I saw this, that um, that the administration sought information from Facebook about, you know, what it's doing around COVID uh, disinformation, right. misinformation. And I, I looked at that and I thought, like, what's the basis for the administration to ask that? I mean, they can yeah. ask, they can ask anything. I mean, government can always ask, you know, would you kindly provide the following information? I mean... But it seemed to me that if they're asking those questions, it's also a moment to think about, does government have the appropriate legal framework and legal authority to, you know, to ask companies for information, to demand some transparency? And I thought that, you know, last week was a what it could have been a great pivot for the administration to say, you know what, we don't know enough. We're not getting enough information. I think they they are right to, I mean, researchers around the country, around the world, complain about the difficulty of getting information from the platforms um, and for all sorts of proprietary and privacy reasons. Right. But what a great moment it would have been last week to say, we need a new framework for transparency from the companies. It's not going to be about content specific, but unless we get information, we're not going to know how to respond to the companies. We need a framework for asking for that kind of information, something that's, you know, rooted in rule of law standards. Evidently, we don't have that. Um, so anyway, I mean, that was my, my reaction was, why not? Why not move into that kind of, um, you know, rigorous public policy debate about what really would matter while also preserving the basic principles of free speech for the companies and for individuals? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I I think that's great, and that would have been that would have been a thoughtful response, and 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 I think you're right that there are people in the administration who who know this, but the, for whatever reason they seem to 
to take this very aggressive stance, which which raises all sorts of questions, um, in, including and, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Like, where 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 do you think the line is for government? You know, if they see right, there's different things, right? If if if, gov if government officials see what is clearly mis or disinformation online. Um, you know, they can use their bully pulpit to, to call it out. I, I, to some extent, that, that feels completely fair, and that's them using their, their speech as well. Mm -hmm. um, but, but where does that cross the line into, you know, trying, compelling or forcing or putting pressure on a, on a private actor to take down protected speech? It, it's a very, yeah, I mean, I think the, you, you very quickly get up to towing, you know, that, <laughs> putting your toes right on the line. It, and it's 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 difficult. I think, look, you know, social media, search, other internet companies are clearly, you know, part of an information environment in which there's a lot of disinformation out there. I mean, there's no, no nobody really questions that. I mean, whether they're responsible for it is another issue, but it's out there. And so for government to raise concerns about that, I think is totally legitimate. It's a public mm -hmm. policy issue. The, and, and I think that if, and this is again why it wouldn't be bad if there's there were a legal framework around this, because if government could say, you know, for example, create a, a task force that could be multi-stakeholder. So it could have representation from people who might be a little bit more sensitive to company interests, also to civil society, to public health officials. You know, you have a kind of task force and they could do regular transparency reporting about what they're finding, you know, and it should be cross-platform. Um, and and it could be not just, you know, the, the platforms, you know, social media, but also hosts and others. I mean, there, mm -hmm. there's a vast infrastructure here. And um, that would be a different kind of approach than, you know, periodically using, you know, the power of government, which is a real power, like even mm -hmm. if they're not demanding information, if they're criticizing specific companies, that has a kind of um, intimidating power yeah. that I don't, I, you know, I think is problematic for a democratic society. And so, I mean, I think we should, I, it's, it's a place where we could be really developing some creative thinking around you know, broader approaches to making sure that we know what we need to know and, and, and kind of, you know, more thoughtful rule of law oriented approaches to getting the information that government needs in order to regulate. I, and we're not there, but, but it also, you know, one of the big concerns I had last week was how, how much that modeled for, you know, a less rule of law focused society, let's say, you know, how you deal with the companies. And look, you know, Modi's government in India has been putting on like very public pressure or Nigeria's, you know, its pressure mm -hmm. on Twitter, you know, shutting down the platform um, or Turkey's pressure on any, you know, on YouTube or Wikipedia. You know, all of these examples involved governments basically, you know, first stating in a public way, we don't like what the companies are doing. It's bad for our democracy or it's bad for our information or will harm people. And then they moved pretty quickly to using the tools of government to restrict these, you know, these companies, which ultimately isn't really only a restriction on companies. It's a restriction on individual speech. 
So why, we shouldn't be in the business of modeling that for others. We should be in the business of saying, okay, we need some rules of the road. It needs to be fair. It needs to be open. It doesn't, we don't want this to be about intimidation. We want this to be about, you know, cooperating. It requires the companies to open up in a way that they might be unwilling to, because they're clearly unwilling to without law. So we're going to create something, you know, we should do it and we could do it quickly. This, this, this shouldn't be a huge debating point in my view. I mean, of course the companies will argue against it, but at least when it comes to, you know, Democrats and Republicans, what's the argument against getting more information? That's something that could be kind of quickly done and, and done fairly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is interesting and it is amazing how much I think, you know, especially in the US, they don't consider like how these actions will then be used, honestly, straight to justify actions in, in more oppressive countries. And and we've seen that in the past with, with different laws in terms of or attempts to regulate the internet, where, you know, I, we've seen China step up and say, well, we're doing the exact same thing that you're doing in the US, you find this, Completely. you know, unhealthy. Uh, and so, uh, you know, our restrictions on, on people talking about democracy in Hong Kong is the same thing. It's it's about national security and national health. Um, totally. and, and so, you know, giving, giving that sort of ammunition to to oppressive governments, I think is is really, really problematic. Yeah, and we're um, not the only ones either. You know, yeah. I mean, Germany adopted its Network Enforcement Act, which, yeah. whatever you think about it, um, you know, it imposes imposes these pretty strict penalties on companies that I think has had a problem for Germany. But it's also yes. had a problem in the sense of you know governments around the world saying we want our own net CG, yep. you know, Network Enforcement Act, or the online harms. Yeah, uh, in the UK. I mean, it's the same, you know, yeah. I get it. These countries, these are democratic countries. They have real problems. They have a difficulty in dealing with this because they are democratic and they have, you know, as much as Americans like to imagine Europe doesn't have freedom of expression. I mean, <laughs> they do. They really genuinely do. They approach it a little bit differently, but they, they embrace it as well. And, you know, they're adopting laws that are you know, it's not the only reason to oppose those kinds of laws, sure. but we should be mindful of the, the kind of model that we do present and not just the U.S., but others present. Yeah, I mean, the the, the UK, the online safety used to be online harms yeah. uh, bill, which is an interesting, interesting change. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know, I pointed out when 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 it came out that it it really models almost directly what the original uh, Great Firewall of, of China operated like. It's it's since changed and China operates slightly differently these days. But, you know, the original model that China used was a sort of vague threat <laughs> towards yeah. service providers that if you let through something that we decide is bad, you will be liable for it. But we will not tell you exactly what is bad. You may get notes saying you messed up or, or watch out for this. Uh, but it's sort of, you know, vaguely up to you. And therefore, the, the immediate reaction, of course, is to overblock um because right. you, you don't you want to avoid liability and and a lot of the the online safety bill sort of takes that same approach and they just add in this little caveat which is like but don't block anything that is like that is important <laughs> right know? right <laughs> i think that's a really great i mean that's a great comparison i'm glad you make it because i think people people just assume that there will be um 
you know, kind of firewalls to use, right. you know, you know, against democratic countries overreaching. And, you know, the truth is, I mean, as we've seen over the last several years, particularly in a world where there's a liberal parties out there gaining power, the idea that, you know, that there's some natural democratic firewall against overreach and repression is just not, I mean, it's not borne out by the facts. It's not borne out by yeah. the history, recent history in Hungary or in Poland or Slovenia. So, you know, we need to be just really cautious here. Yeah. Um, have you have you seen the new um, the bill from from Amy Klobuchar uh, about health misinformation? I, yeah, I just I just read about it yesterday, but I didn't I haven't seen the bill. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I, I just wrote something about it and I was, uh, I will say oh, great. probably in a surly mood so that, <laughs> that, that may have come across, uh, in, in, in the write-up. It, it just, it, it just struck me as, as so performative and so useless because all it does, well, it allows the, well, it instructs the, the secretary of health and human services to, um, to define what is health misinformation, which already just mm -hmm. that is very problematic. And you could see yeah. where that could go very, very wrong. Um, and but then it says, you know, after that, it takes away Section 230 protections from the platforms. If, uh, you know, if that misinformation as as determined by HHS uh, is found on their platform. And, and but only, you know, the, the way they sort of try and try to make it somewhat constitutional, though I think it fails, is that they, you know, this only applies during a health emergency. Uh -huh. um, and so like, okay, there's there's sort of an emergency situation. So the overwhelming interest is, is towards that. But, you know, yeah. but the thing is, what it doesn't get at is like, almost all, if not all of the misinformation, whether we like it or not, is First Amendment protected. So even yeah. if Facebook were liable for it, what is the underlying cause of action? Mm -hmm. You know, okay, yes, no, it's exactly. misinformation. Like, yeah. okay, they're not protected by 230, but but for what? What are you going to sue them over? <laughs> right. Know? I mean, you're getting at a point that I think is is often lost, although people like you and um, others who are familiar with Section 230, you know, highlight for people, which is you get rid of Section 230, you still have the First Amendment protections. Right. and And so, yeah, so, it, you know, you get rid of Section 230 and so people can sue. But for most of these kinds of suits, or you know, even if, if you had a law that provided this, they should still lose. So it just right. becomes a costly endeavor for no purpose in a way, for, you know, for performative purposes, like you know, to yes. use your word. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's really problematic. I mean, and it's problematic on so many levels to think that you know, government can kind of create a list or a definition of of information that is not true. Right. Which I think is what I mean to 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 define disinformation or misinformation, that's what it would would identify, which is why I think it's so much better to put this information or this um this concern about disinformation around um health into a consumer protection basket like put it into mm -hmm. the basket of like that american law has traditionally like within the context of the first amendment or like under the shadow of the first amendment 
has addressed issues of fraud that is and disinformation that's connected to, you know, undermining consumer health. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's been reporting that shows that a lot of the disinformation is actually tied to uh, like an economic model, people trying to, you know, hawk yeah. their, you know, their snake oil out in the market. And so that, I mean, it would be interesting to know how how much of the disinformation we would deal with if we if we dealt with that problem, as opposed yeah. to saying this kind of speech is verboten and you know we're, you're going to be penalized for hosting it. Yeah, yeah, no, I I, I think that's right. I mean, I potentially um, you know focusing on consumer protection issues raises some other issues, but I think that would get what gets deep in, in the weeds and the specifics. I mean, I've, I've seen, you know, yeah. in particular state AGs sort of abuse consumer protection laws for all sorts of yeah. reasons. And I, I would fear that happening again. Um, if, if there was, you know, if all of this was lumped directly under consumer protection and, and perhaps under the, the, um, the ability of, of state attorneys generals to, to, go after misinformation yeah. um and but, that's totally yeah. that's totally fair no i i totally totally get that concern and so like crafting a and like a narrow approach to this is is hard i think that yeah. maybe this is the problem in out of congress is that you know all of these problems are seen as somehow easy to to solve if you <laughs> yes. just have if you know kind of goes back to what you're saying before it's like we don't like this information. We don't like this speech. Um, and let's just, you know, assume that the speech does have a, a, a harm attached to it. Like we can assume that for, you know, some kinds of information. I mean, why would you like if speech didn't have an impact, we wouldn't care so much about protecting it. So, <laughs> right. you know, so I, the, the idea of this is why I go back to the idea of, you know, creating norms of transparency. It could be done by law so that, you know, we have more information. And I actually, right. I mean, a lot of people, I, I think, legitimately say, well, um, you know, access to information and transparency has become kind of a meaningless mantra. Like it doesn't, it doesn't have any accountability connected to it, which is fair. But, but I think that particularly in an environment where so many people have a voice and there's so much um, uh, there's so much ability for individuals to boycott, to raise concerns and so forth, that the, the mere transparency of, uh, you know, a company's rules and enforcement of its rules and its, you know, its underpinnings of its or the data that it collects um, that feed into its algorithmic and recommendation systems. Like those are the kinds of things that I think people would use in a way that would be fair. Yeah. You know, maybe Facebook would get canceled, you know, because of this information. <laughs> but, you know, that's a lot better than government saying, yeah. you know, we're going to we're going to cancel you because we don't like this information. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's true. And, you know, th- there's there's another element that I, I, I keep thinking about. And, and we had we had um, Heather Burns, uh, who, who works mm-hmm. for Open Rights Group in the UK on to talk about yeah. this a, a few months ago, was, was she pointed out, you know, how much of this discussion is really kind of, you know, government hiding behind 
its own failures at, at, at larger social policies and sort of blaming social media um, for, for its own inability to solve, you know, really difficult problems, admittedly. Yeah. Um, and just saying, you know, well, we couldn't do it. So now it's, it's on the, the social media companies. Um, I think that's totally fair. I mean, but this is uh, like, we, we need in a way, like we need big policies to promote you know, for example, public broadcasting, yeah. you know, which which is very much a part of the problems in our information space. I mean, the, the denigration of or the decimation of local reporting, which, mm -hmm. you know, some people think, well, you know, Facebook caused that. It's, it's not true. I mean, the economic model for local reporting has been on a downward trajectory for decades you know, yeah. predating uh, social media. I mean, social media didn't help, but, you know, there's there's just so much that we could think about that's broader social policy that government has, I mean, has failed. And for a lot of reasons. I mean, yeah. the, deregulate, the deregulatory, you know, momentum in the United States and in and Europe has meant that government has stepped out where actually it has a, a positive, like, um, you know, a positive role, a, a reinforcing role for information and for people to be educated. It, it's very hard for people to get that today. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw, I, I don't know if you saw this. I just, and I had just seen it before we started recording, um, which was a, a comment from, from Mark Zuckerberg, who I'm, I'm not inclined necessarily to, to trust or put, mm -hmm. put much weight in, but, but I, I thought it was actually kind of an interesting comment um, and, mm -hmm. and, and surprisingly open, which is he pointed out that, you know, on, on the issue of vaccine uh, misinformation, you know, Facebook is available around the globe and there are very different, you know, vaccination rates and, and successful campaign, you know, success level of campaigns around the globe. And that it's hard to say that that social media is the cause that they're they're you know, necessarily why you have such vaccine hesitancy among certain populations in the U.S. when in other countries they don't see that. Which, yeah. you know, is, is a little bit of passing the buck <laughs> to some extent, but mm -hmm. there is a, a, an underlying point there, which is that there are a lot of factors that go into this um, and to try and focus it all on, on saying, well, it's all just misinformation on Facebook that's causing it, I think is, is, is you know, that's simplifying a very, very difficult problem in a way that is probably not helpful. Or... I, completely. I mean, I, I'm not sure I would, I agree totally with, Zuckerberg's point, but, <laughs> but yeah. I do agree. I mean, there's so many factors involved here. Look, I'm, I'm not a COVID expert, but just <laughs> as a, let's say as a concerned citizen, right? Yeah. Like I have been concerned about CDC messaging, mm -hmm. um, you know, like getting rid of the masks early, for example, or like the, you know, the, the idea that, so, you know, a lot of European countries are adopting the COVID pass, like this green pass, they call it in Europe, which, you know, you need to show evidence of vaccination in order to get into stadiums, to go to, to clubs, um, to, uh, to museums and so forth. To me, that seems legitimate, right? Or mm -hmm. at least there's a legitimate debate that you could have around those. In the United States, that debate is, you know, so fraught, like, well, it's about freedom. <laughs> You know, and that's that's a problem because, I mean, public policy that incentivized, 
vaccinations in that way might have led to a you know less hesitancy in some pop. I, I have no idea, but that's I think it's yeah. it's possible. But anyway, I, it's to agree that there's you know multiple factors going on here. It, it can't just be social media. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, there, there's lots that we could, I'm sure we could continue talking about this. There's so many yeah. different things going on and, and free speech touches on everything, but uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I'm sure there will be other issues in the future and, and we'd love to have you back on again uh, in the future to continue talking about all this stuff. Yeah. I mean, the one, the other thing that I've been like, cause we were talking before we went on yeah. about what a crazy couple of weeks it's been. I mean, the other part that, that I've been following has been, you know, all this Pegasus project, oh, yeah. like the NSO group. And I mean, just to mention in, in passing, because I think the idea of surveillance and the private, the global private spyware market yeah. is like, it's actually an issue where, you know, clearly NSO group isn't the only company out there. And, and yeah. because it's an opaque industry, I mean, it makes it makes social media look like, uh, you know, the most transparent industry in the world. <laughs> right. Because the, the private spyware industry is incredibly opaque for all yeah. sorts of reasons. And yet, you know, they have a real, I think, long term. They pose a real long term threat to free speech in democratic and non-democratic societies around the world. So it's, you know. It's actually an area where I can imagine the Biden administration or other, you know, democratic governments more actively, like rolling into these questions about speech and privacy, some more thoughtful ideas about um, about what regulation yeah. looks like. So. Yeah, and and, ju and just in case anyone listening somehow missed the story, this was the NSO Group, which is sort of a famous kind of spyware malware provider that that has always had some questionable aspects to it, but, but I, I, a list was leaked of, of apparent targets um, and it included a whole bunch of journalists and activists and also political leaders um, all over the globe, though NSO group is, is denying that the list is accurate, but uh, yeah. some there, there've been, you know, the, the groups that sort of wrote about it said that they actually, you know, checked some of the phones and found some mm -hmm. evidence that, that the Pegasus spyware was there. Um, and yeah, yeah, raises huge, huge, disturbing, difficult questions um, about, about surveillance and free speech and, um, and, and a variety of things. And, and yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, wow. And and I think, actually, if I remember correctly, uh, Facebook is currently suing NSO Group, right? O That's right. Over, yeah. Over... Right, for, for, right. For interference, for NSO's interference with WhatsApp. That's right. Um, and they have something, I think, 140, 150, like specific accounts, which, you know, are phone yeah. numbers that they have evidence of, you know, of malware. So basically yeah. malware on the phones, it was injected through a WhatsApp vector. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's interesting stuff and, and it'll be interesting yeah. to see what, if anything, the administration does, or if Congress does anything to, to sort of deal with, with that, which, which is a yeah. real threat and, and, in a, and, you know, but it is all sort of tied in and related. Yeah. So, sure. so, so many challenges. <laughs> so many, right. Keeping our, 
keeping our day jobs busy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Crazy. Uh, overwhelmed. Well, I, I will let yeah. you get back to your day job. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I appreciate you taking the time uh, and, and having this discussion and, and congratulations on, on having the, the center announced and, and everything that, yeah. that's, that's, that's going to happen there. And I look forward to, to seeing what you guys come up with. Great. Thanks, Mike. And I enjoyed the conversation and enjoy reading what you're writing. It's always great. <laughs> cool. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for listening as well. And uh, we'll be back next week.